so as I was um, just preparing for this, and I think we have a handout. Um, I think it's, it's there. So if, if you like fill in the blanks, I, I, I missed it for you. So they're just notes tonight. So you can add some notes there, but um, we have those out there. And as I was preparing, just thinking about this, um, one thing I, I wanted to just set the context of rules of Bible study. They are so important to understanding God's word, but it's not about the knowledge. It's not about just amassing more Bible knowledge. And sometimes we can fall into that trap and pit of, I just need to know more Bible knowledge. Um, the great commandment, what's that? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And that's what Jesus said was, was the great commandment. So it's about loving God. And how do we do that? Well, we can only love God um, by knowing him and knowing him through his word. And um, we, can, we can look at the example of David who wrote Psalm 119. He was a man after God's own heart. And he, he wrote this. He says in Psalm 119, 127, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. This isn't on the notes. This is, this is extra. So, But um, to have a heart for God's word is really what it's about, having a heart attitude to love, to love the Lord. Psalm 119, 163 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. How much do you get offended? Well, if, if we love the Lord's uh, word, it will insulate us from that. So it's really about developing a relationship with the Lord through his word. Because to know, and, and it's about knowing his word, living his word, and loving his word. So that's what it comes down to. And um, Proverbs talks about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Those three principles. What's, what's interesting with those, those principles is if you understand what, uh, what wisdom is, it's a fear of the Lord, which is having an awe for for the Lord, but when you have wisdom and a fear of the Lord, you depart from evil. So um, knowledge of, of the word is truth, understanding is applying that truth, and wisdom is knowing how to apply it, and what happens? You depart from evil, which is, the op uh, which is um, uh, going in the right direction. So departing from evil is heading towards truth, right? when you depart from evil. There's a lot of, there are a lot of people who want to have truth and, or, or want to have knowledge, but they don't really want to depart from evil. So they haven't really gotten there yet. But uh, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So it's about taking God's word, applying it to our life, and then we become more like him. We have uh, we understand his heart and his mind, and we're walking like he does. So really, I want you to understand the, the uh, rules of Bible study are so important, but it's, it's, again, it's not just about having a lot of neat, cool um, 
factoids about the Bible. It's about having a changed heart and mind where we can walk closer with the Lord. That's really what it comes down to. And this week and next week, I was excited when uh, Pastor Brian said I could do the principles of Bible study and, and uh, dispensations next week because those two pieces help us understand our Bible and see how it fits together. And the way that I think of it is a, a puzzle. Um, so if you've ever put together a great big puzzle, uh, you may not need this, but I need the cover of the box to know what it looks like. Okay, and then I have some strategies. I'm going to work the edges. I'm going to look for colors. I'm going to look for patterns to try to put it together. This Bible is a puzzle, and God has put it together uh, like a puzzle. We've talked about departing from evil and wisdom. We talked about fear of the Lord. You know what? Um, If we talk about knowledge, the devil has more knowledge of the Bible than you can even imagine. He's had generation after generation knowing um, or learning the Bible, but he has no understanding, he has no wisdom. How do I know that? Because understanding is departing from evil. He, well, he's evil incarnate. He has no fear of the Lord. He's afraid of God, but he doesn't fear God. So what has God done? He's taking his word and he's put it together like a puzzle and the devil can't figure it out because he has no understanding, no wisdom. God is also, um, if you look at, at what Jesus has talked about with parables in the New Testament, he said, some things I've hidden as a mystery. So those who deny him can't get to this truth because they have no understanding, they have no wisdom. But those who are his children who will seek out his word to love him, he says, I have these mysteries, the mysteries of the kingdom, and I'm going to show them to you. So it's all laid out here, but it's put together like a puzzle. And two things help us understand how that fits together. It's like having a strategy with a puzzle and having the full picture. I think of, and I don't, Pastor Brian, I don't have you think of it, but the, the uh, rules of Bible study are like those strategies And the dispensations are like the picture on the puzzle. You see how the whole thing fits together with the dispensations, and then you can see the whole picture and go, oh, I know how to put it together. So that's why I was excited about uh, going through the rules of Bible study and then also going through dispensations. So with that said, now we can get started. The problem is I have 21 of those to go through, and so we're going to have to go fast. I do have a PowerPoint here uh, that I put together, and so um, it should fall along with, with your notes there. So the number one rule of Bible study is, actually it's the first three rules of Bible study, as they used to say. Context, 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 right? Most important thing. And it makes sense. I I used to be an English teacher lifetimes ago, a long time ago. But um, any book, what we want to do is to take it and read it as it's written. You don't take a book and go, hmm, 
I think this must mean, no, you just read it as it is, right? That's what God wants us to do with this book. Now, unfortunately, and take it in its normal, literal sense, unless it tells us otherwise, what a lot of people try to do is they go, oh, this is a mystical book, so I'm going to tell you what I think it means. And you get yourself in a lot of trouble by doing that. We should just read it for what it is, and the Holy Spirit will help us. The first thing is context. So before you ask what a verse or a passage means, you must determine the context. Now, this helps you with anything in life anyway. You're dealing with a conflict with another person? Figure out the context of what's going on. And you realize, usually, it's not the problem with you. It's the context of what's going on, right? Um, but God wants us to do the same thing with his word, is understand the context. In uh, 2 Peter, I, I know that's a little bit hard to read, 3.15 and 16, um, it says this, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. In verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, note this, which they are unlearned and unstable rest or twist as they uh, do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So those who are unlearned and unstable, they twist scripture. They take it out of context and try to make it mean something that it was not intended to mean. So context is so important. And we have to beware twisting scriptures, false witnesses today and throughout time have twisted scriptures, uh, scripture and corrupted truth since the first century. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, For we not as many which corrupt the word of God, but of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So that's what we need to do is, is not... Uh, treat the word of God in a corrupt manner, but with sincerity. And when we come to the word of God with sincerity, saying, Lord, I want your heart. I want to know your mind, is what he has given us through his word. And you, you consider the context, and you walk through these strategies, God will um, enlighten you to what he has given us. So four questions are, are helpful um, and those are, and I think they're on your notes there. Are they on the notes? No? Okay. So, and, and they are pretty, uh, pretty much common sense. So where does, understand uh, first the book, the chapter, the verse, and the word. So um, four questions to ask yourself when studying the word, a verse, a chapter, a book. Where does the book fit in relation to the whole Bible? So where's the book fit? That's the context of the book. And so this isn't like earth-shattering. Um, where does the chapter fit in relation to the book for the purpose that the book um, is written? Where does the verse fit in relation to the context of the chapter? And then what do the word or words mean in the context of the book, chapter, or verse? Right? 
So that's what books are made up of, is words that fit into verses, that fit into chapters, that fit in the books. So consider all those contexts as you're reading scripture. When you have, you're coming to a scripture that doesn't make sense, stop and look at that context. And then we're, we're going to look at a few examples um, tonight. Um, it's also important understanding the context uh, as far as whom the Bible is addressing at that point. Many misguided churches and denominations build their teaching around scripture that's not in context. And that's where they justify baptism for salvation or baptism regeneration or salvation through works um, as an example. Um, So one example, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2. And verse 4. No, I'm sorry, Matthew 16. Apologize, Matthew 16. I'm going to go here. Matthew 16 and verse 16. And drop down to verse 18 for a minute. So Matthew 16, 18. It says, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, if you're not careful, you can misunderstand this. Now, there's a teaching that Peter was the rock that the church is built upon. And if you take this out of context and you just look at just this verse, it, it could kind of look like that. So um, if you notice the context, what does this chapter, or this not chapter, what does this verse start with? The word and, which is a conjunction. And you don't need to be uh, an English teacher to understand, I probably should look to see what the and is talking about, what's connecting with, Right? Um, with that conjunction. So you look preceding that verse, and in verse number 17, what do you see that verse starting with? An and. Well, you might want to see what that and is for. You go to 16, what do you see there? There's an and. Okay? And then you go to 15, um, and he saith unto them, But whom say say ye that I am? Well, let's go ahead and get the, the full context. If you jump up, All the way up to uh, 14, there's another and. And then finally you get to verse 13 where it says when. Now that's the full context. And what happens uh, in 13, Jesus says to them, whom he's talking to uh, his disciples, specifically to Peter, but to his disciples. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? So that's the question. Who is Jesus? And they they give an answer of what people say. In verse 15, he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Who, who Who do you disciples say that I am? 
And Simon, in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In verse 18, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What was he talking to Peter and the others about? About who he is, about who Jesus is, right? Um, we, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that, that Jesus is the foundation, right? And that's what's being talked about here, that it is Jesus Christ who is the rock, and upon this foundation that he was just talking with of who he is and that he is God, his deity, that's upon which the church is built, the rock. Second Corinthians um, 11, or 1 Corinthians 11, 4, that Jesus Christ is the rock, capital R. Uh, now, you can, you can pick up some other pieces here when you get the context of, of this verse. Peter is... Um, actually meaning in, in Greek as a stone. And when you look at the word rock, it's actually meaning an essential, an essential rock or the rock. So Peter is a chip off of the, old, of the rock is what it's talking here. Uh, but who is the foundation and what is the church going to be built upon? The rock that is Christ. When you follow the ands, you get back to Jesus. And if you follow the context, you learn that that um, the foundation the church that is built upon is Jesus Christ, who is the rock, and you don't get mixed up thinking that Peter is the pope and that the first pope and that this is the rock uh, that the church has been built upon. All you had to do is read the context to get that. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, as, as Pastor Brian would say, can Conjunction, junction, right? What's your function, right? Um, I'm not good as lyrics, as good at lyrics as he is. So, um, so many problem texts will be solved by the simple placing a book in the context by its author and people group. Also, uh, for instance, the book of Hebrews. Who do you think it's written to? Hebrews. It's not tough, right? Um, the book of James was written to the twelve tribes at. It, it says in the first few verses to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. It, it tells you. Just read the context of it. Uh, one thing that just shocked me, and I, I, I said to Pastor Brian a few weeks ago that I'm 30 years into this as a Christian, and I've never seen this before, that um, we'll look at dispensations, but it, the, the uh, Pauline epistles start with, with Romans, and it ends with Philemon. Right after Philemon is the book of Hebrews. So God has laid it out that, okay, Romans, okay, Gentiles, here are the books that you have. And then after that, Hebrews, pay attention to those books after that. It's really not that, that difficult. God laid it out. It's taken me 30 years to figure it out. But um, it, it, it's, it's helpful to understand that God has laid it out simply. We just need to pay attention to the signposts that he's put there for us. The, the books, First and Second Peter, are written to the, the apostle to the circumcision or to the Hebrews. We see that in Galatians 2, 7 through 9. 
So remember that every passage of Scripture has a specific doctrinal context, which can be found by placing the word, the verse, the passage, and the book in the proper context. So if you get nothing else from tonight, understand that you have to pay attention to the context. If you just get that, you're going to be ahead of most. Okay? So that's principle number number one, which is context. Principle number two that, that aligns with that is understanding the people groups. So number two is the Bible is written to three broad groups of people, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. So if you pay attention to uh, as you're, you're reading, you're studying, who is being addressed here? The Jew, the Gentile, or the church, it will save you a lot of heartache and a lot of confusion. 1 Corinthians 10, 32-33, Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So you've got all three people groups in this, this one passage. Thank you. Um, so it's important to understand that all of the Bible is written for you, but not all scripture is written to you. So if, if someone has written a, a letter, or in this case, in Christmas season, a card to Annabeth, not written to me, uh, but I can learn some things from what's written. Uh, so I can, I can still get principles, and those principles are for me, even though I understand that it wasn't originally directed to me as the audience. For instance, the Ten Commandments are for us, but they weren't to us. So there are principles in our lives, but they weren't originally written to us. Now, they are substantiated in the Pauline epistles and the doctrine that, that we've been given in the New Testament, but they're originally to the Jew. Uh, the New Testament tells us that all things were written in the Old Testament for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things were written, uh, were our examples, talking about the Old Testament. So, um, we have examples that are given here. But you, you need to be careful not to take your uh, doctrine from places that are not written to us, that are, that are to the Jew. Um, and that's where a lot of people get mixed up and, and horrified that, oh, all of these stories, some of these stories are horrendous. Some of these are probably rated R version stories, okay, of violence and such. And people get very upset. Why would God do that? Well... You're not put into the proper context and understand that that's, that's written to a Jew and we need to place it in a context and we can still learn some principles from that. So remember to ask these questions when studying. What is the context of the passage and to whom is the passage written? The third biblical principle is the, the principle of divisions. So... Um, God has placed natural divisions in his word, and we'll see a few here. We're going to dive much deeper next week into dispensations. And about 4 a.m. this morning, God gave me a beautiful analogy with an airplane with divisions. I can't wait to talk about it next week, but I have to wait and talk about it next week. So um, you don't want to miss that. (laughs) 
Um, what you need to know is it's critical to understand the impact of God's natural divisions to determine the doctrinal context of any passage. The penalty of incorrectly dividing the word of God is um, confusion and impure doctrine. So 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. What are we going to do with that? Rightly dividing the word of truth. So um, we'll look more deeply at this next week. So I'm going to go quickly here, but next week we're going to dive deep into dispensation. So God's place and preserved markers in his word to assist us in dividing his words. Uh, the simple uh, division, obviously the Old Testament, the New Testament. So we see the breakdown uh, there of the books. What is amazing, and it's that I'm 30 years into this, a little over 30 years, and how beautifully God has taken 66 books, 1,100 chapter, uh, almost 1,200 chapters, um, over 31,000 verses, and it just fits together beautifully. When, when you study this, it fits like one book, but it's, it's over so long of a period of time and, and so many authors, but God makes it fit together beautifully. And we'll talk more deeply as we get into these other, other principles here. Um, do you guys have any idea what I'm talking about? I mean, uh, I was waiting for a shout amen when, when you get into the word and see how amazing it is. Um, it'll come later. Okay. Uh, there we go. So Pauline epistles, so the, the, the letters that, that, that Paul wrote are written to believers of a Gentile background, whereas Peter, James, and John... Uh, wrote to a Hebrew audience. And that's what I was talking about that it hit me in the head a few weeks ago saying uh, Romans is the first epistle that, that uh, Paul wrote. And if you follow all those epistles that, that uh, Paul wrote until you can't go any further, so you get to Philemon and the very next book is the book of Hebrews. And then everything after that is written um, to a Hebrew audience. That will play a bigger part next week when we talk about dispensations. Okay, so with, with the authors, we, we know that um, the number of words in the Bible are almost 800,000 words that we have. Um, and then the breakdown of, of authors in the Old Testament, we have the patriarchs and Hebrew prophets, the apostles and Jesus and then um, combined together, we see how it fits together as one book um, uh, for the Lord and see his deity. Um, as, as far as the audience, we see Hebrews, the church um, in the New Testament. Also, um, uh, after the dispensation of grace, which we'll get into next week, there, God returns to the nation of Israel. So as far as natural divisions in the books, so you have the, the Pentateuch, the five first chapters of the book, uh, of the Bible. So Genesis through Jude Deuteronomy, and we see the formation of Israel. And then the next three uh, 
books, we have Joshua through Ruth, which is the uh, establishment of Israel in the land. Uh, then Israel in the kingdom, which is 1 Samuel through Chronicles. Then we see Israel in captivity from Ezra to Esther, the wisdom books, Job to Solomon, the major prophets, Isaiah to Jan Daniel, uh, the minor prophets, Hosea until Malachi. So those are the seven natural divisions of the Old Testament. Of the New Testament, we have seven, seven natural divisions there. We have the Gospels, where Jesus is seen in Matthew as a king, in Mark as a man, in Luke I'm sorry, Mark is a servant, Luke as um, Jesus is seen as a man, and then John, he's seen as the Son of God. So those four perspectives that we harmonize together, and uh, we, can, we can learn about his, his character, his nature, his, his deity, and, and all of who he is, and understand his heart and mind. In the uh, history Similar to the Old Testament, you have uh, the book of Acts, which is the uh, history book for, uh, for us. The uh, church epistles, Romans through Second uh, Thessalonians. Then the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy through Philemon. The Hebrew uh, transition epistles, Hebrews through Peter. John's epistles, First uh, John through Third, And then the end time epistles. Uh, which is Jude and Revelation. And um, we'll look next week of how this fits into dispensations. So it's important to keep in mind that the New Testament did not start officially until the death of what? The testator, okay? Um, Hebrews 9.15, which says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the tester, uh, testator liveth. So what does that mean? That means that officially the New Testament and, and the church age, the age of grace, um, can't start until we have the death of, of the testator or the, the, the uh, institutor of the testament, who is Jesus. And so that helps us understand, okay, we have to look a little bit deeper to understand that we have some transitional books here, which are the Gospels, as God is transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, we have the Gospels where it's coming from law to grace. And so um, God is a patient God. Sometimes we get frustrated because we want things done now. Right, God, why don't you do this now? But God does things on his timetable. And what I've had to learn in my life is that God has transition times in my life. I don't like it sometimes because I want it now. But God has transition times because it's on his timetable. Well, he did that with his word too, with transition books, with um, the Gospels and Acts, our transition books from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then, again, you had the, the death of the testator, um, where the church, um, in the book of Acts, there's even a, a more specific transition that's happening um, into the church age. We have other divisions, uh, seven physical divisions of, of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, 
the books, the chapters, the passages, the verses, and the words. So just the physical um, divisions in the Bible. So real um, quickly, yes. To me, it seems obvious. Um, so you have systems of men, right, who put things together. And I don't pretend to have all, to know all things, you know. But when you take the word of God literally, um, it seems to, to fall together. Now, why? Um, why, why to, do men... Uh, devise their own rules and, and uh, traditions of men. Um, I, I think that gets to, back to the old issue of, of pride. Um, Brian, I don't know if you would have anything else that you would say to that. Jamie, can you help with that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I would, I'd say amen, and just to, just one step further with that, of course, because of the pride, uh, usually the alternative to dispensational theology is a covenant theology, mm-hmm. and there are Bible covenants, um, but it's a, actually a, it, it actually um, it robs, yeah, it's, it's dispensation. not, yeah, and it, it robs Israel, ultimately, mm-hmm. of their promises, so typically, you see people really committed to um, an alternate systematic, or not systematic, but a system for the dividing the word, or not really rightly dividing the word, wrongly dividing the word. The, the divisions are there because the Bible says so. There's rightly dividing the word. So they'll wrongly divide the word so that they can claim promises that are not theirs. And uh, as and there are typically, and the, uh, a good example is the passage Jeremy already used, which is Matthew 16, where they claim promises, they take that out of context, and uh, and you can see that then, uh, and they create their own doctrines and teachings, which are doctrines of devils and even mm-hmm. churches, uh, Revelation tells mm-hmm. us. So anyway, I would just say to succinctly, a lot of times when the, the Bible's being manipulated, uh, in addition to pride, it's also usually claiming a promise that doesn't belong to you and, you know, cov- shoving a square peg in a round mm-hmm. hole, so to speak. It's called replacement theology. So taken especially with Israel, promises given to Israel and saying they're, they're ours. Um, one thing that, if you study the Ten Commandments, uh, one thing that's common with all the Ten Commandments is uh, people who are taking something that is not given to them. All of those are consistent, whether it's covetousness, adultery, all the way through something that God has not given to you and taken it as yours. Um, even... Worship. God says, you worship me, and if you go and worship something, that's not um, the correct worship that God has given to us. So um, I, I guess it comes down to context, right? Is understanding context and understanding what, what it comes down to. Does that help a little bit? Okay. Um, defining dispensations, again, we're going to dive deeply into this next week, but um, just real quickly... Um, dispensations, which understanding that, that we have um, 
divisions, God's place, natural divisions um, in his word. Um, a dispensation is, is a dispensing of God's grace uh, and, in, and that is entrusted to a steward. And there's, there's a certain um, way that that is administered or dispensed. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into that next week. Dispensations are measured in time, and we're going to look at those time periods, those different um, uh, divisions of dispensations, and we're going to look at the stewards and how that's handled next week. So I'm not going to take a, a, a ton of time diving into that uh, next week, but that is something you don't want to miss. So we'll, we'll, we'll go into more detail uh, next week with that. To me, that is the dispensations is the, the picture on the, the puzzle box that helps you go, okay, as I'm putting the pieces together in my Bible, I'm looking back at the full picture because I can see the broad picture that God's given so I don't mess up the puzzle. Uh, that's how I see dispensations. So um, the next principle is number four, that all scripture has three applications. A historical, doctrinal, inspirational application. Every single piece of, of scripture has applications that are historical, doctrinal, inspirational. So the doctrinal application is what the passage or verse clearly teaches or instructs us. What is the teaching that we have here? And you um, given to us in the context of Scripture and God's plan for the universe. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So God has given us teaching doctrine. And, and that is the meat that is missing so many times today where people gloss over and they want to they make analogies to the word. They, they want to put symbols in there that aren't there or they just want to make some type of um, uh, devotional application in their life of what it means to them. And they're missing the meat, which is the teaching. And they totally cut that out. So doctrine application is so important. The second thing is historical. So what does the passage uh, teach us historically? So this is the best application actually to start with. It's, it's, uh, it is best to understand what happened before trying to understand what it means. So historically, what was going on in this time period? And then after we understand historically what, what was going on, Okay, what's the teaching, the principle that God wants us to take out of that? And then the third application is called inspirational or devotional, and that's the practical application that we put into our life. Now, what a lot of people want to do is they want to start with that, and they've got the cart before the horse. So we, we first uh, want to understand historically uh, what was going on, What's the principle that this teaches us? And then we apply it to our lives. Um, and that, that is such an important piece, but you can't truly apply um, it to your life until you know what it truly is, right? You're, you're going to get a wrong application if you don't first 
understand historically, doctrinally, and then you can apply it to your life, which is so very important because you don't want to miss that. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to obey? Mm-hmm. Sure, actually, um, I'd love to. So Genesis chapter 22, let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. The challenge is a quick example. Um, so in Genesis 22, it's a beautiful story, although um, weighty a story, but you have Abraham who is being um, told by God that he must offer his only begotten son as a sacrifice. Can you imagine uh, can you imagine that? Um, so historically, I mean, as a father, that's hard for me to wrap my brain around. And the faith that Abraham must have had to say, okay, God, I will obey you, and I'm going to sacrifice my son. Wow. That's historically uh, what we have. And Abraham actually took his only begotten son, um, Isaac, who was... Um, born of Sarah, and they worked so hard uh, or waited so long for him to be born, and now God says, okay, take him, and you need to worship me by, um, by sacrifice. And so Abraham obedi- obediently went to offer him on the mountain as a sacrifice. Now God always provides, so that's historically what happened. Doctrinally, um, the representation here is that the ram represents the death of Christ, who is the lamb of God, um, who was sacrificed for the sin of the world. Now, we should have died, but Jesus died in our place. So that's, that's the teaching that we have is, it's a, it's a picture of, of the lamb of God. So uh, we, we see this in Psalm, uh, Psalm um, in Genesis 22 and verse 8, and Abraham said, my God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. So he says, I have faith that God will provide. I don't understand it, but I am going to go forward that God will provide. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called out as Adam was, or Adam, as Abraham was stretching forth the knife to sacrifice and slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. He said, You are obedient. And... um, then if we go uh, further into the passage, what happens is uh, God provides a lamb, uh, a ram. So in verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in, in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in, in the stead of his son. I mean, can you imagine the emotion that was going through? A father, but he was he was being obedient. God, I fear you, and this helps us get a glance of what it means to fear the Lord. It's serious stuff. 
but God will provide for us. And that's the story here of, that's the picture of, of that ram caught in thicket is the picture that we have. And that's why in Hebrews 11, Abraham is, is uh, listed in the hall of fame of faith because he was obedient to God by faith. Um, and it, it was um, in obedient faith. And we have a picture of how God has provided a substitutionary lamb for us and for our sin. Uh, so that we, we can actually come and worship him because we can um, now be clean before him. So that's the doctrinal application of the lamb of God who is Jesus Christ. And then last, inspirationally, devotionally... Um, we, can t- we can all take principles that we can apply to our life. And uh, that's the thing with the inspiration, the devotional application. It becomes very personal of what, what's happening in your life. And I don't know um, if it's like this for you, but I'll read a passage and then all of a sudden in my life, I'm seeing all these things going on. It's like God has perfectly placed all these things around and I'm reading what I'm reading um, even there, there are things going on at, at times that I'm like, Lord, how would you know, um, you know, it, it, it never seems to snow anymore. It might snow tomorrow. I don't know. But I, I seem to read a passage about snow. Has that happened to you? And you're like, I've read all, you know, all these months and I don't have any passage on snow. But the day it snows, I'm reading about that. Has that ever happened to you? So God, God applies those things to our life if we would just pay attention. But uh, one application, you, are, you and I are free to live because the Lamb of God gave his life for you and for me. So we, we see the historical, what, what Abraham historically went and, and um, did in offering up his son, and then God provided and, uh, a lamb for him to, to save his son. That lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. That's the teaching or the doctrinal application. And then last, how does that apply to my life? Um, he is uh, the lamb for me. And I, I wouldn't be a, a good preacher if I didn't point out in Genesis 22 that we, uh, if you follow the passage, we have that God um, provided a lamb um, and then later, it shows that he was the lamb, right, which points to Jesus Christ. So I could take all night to, to go through that, but uh, there's a quick um, demonstration. The book of Proverbs, historically, was written by Solomon to his sons to impart wisdom from a father to a son. So that's historically what was happen, happening. Doctrinally, Proverbs uh, pictures the millennial reign of Christ when he sits upon the throne. When we talk about dispensations, what, what's amazing, if, if you understand what's going on in the, in the millennium, all th- I talked about a puzzle coming together. All things will come together in the millennium. All the different pieces that God has put together throughout all of time that we see in Scripture all comes together in the millennium, um, where, where it all fits, fits together. And so in the book of Proverbs we have um, a, a picture of the millennial reign. Um, and that's the a doctrinal teaching that we have. When Christ sits on the throne, that wisdom will be um, how we uh, are living when he sets up his kingdom. 
you know, we, we know from Isaiah that um, he, is, he is the prince of peace. He's the governor, right? And his kingdom he'll, he'll set up. And so in Proverbs, we have the, a, a teaching of the wisdom that will pour out from Christ there. Devotionally, Proverbs is packed with wisdom that we need on a daily basis uh, to make us wise as serpents and harmless of do- as doves. So um, why do people do such foolish things today? It's because they're not putting the wisdom that God has given into their heads, and we have uh, so much foolishness that, that goes on today. Um, we're unfortunately dealing with a very biblically Ill- illiterate um, society right now. Um, and actually, this is, this is a bonus, but if you, if you wonder... Lord, why is the government so messed up? Why are things happening in this world? If you study governments in in the word of God, basically what you find is God will give you the government that you deserve. Those societies that are wise and good will be able to govern themselves more in a democratic system. Those societies that are godless and that are foolish have dictators. And God says, I'm going to give you the government you, you deserve. And that happens all through this principle throughout Scripture. And if you look at what's going on in the world, the more they're removed from God, God says, I have to give you a more restrictive and, and more of a dictatorship. So people get the government that they deserve. So I don't know why I want to talk about that, but... Um, Maybe because it's what's going on right now in the world. Uh, Principle of um, the importance. So number five is the importance of individual words. So you have in front of you the word of God. Amen. If you go to most church websites, what they will say is, um, we believe the Bible is inerrant with the word of God you hold in your hand. No. If you check out most church websites, they'll say, in the originals. Where are the originals? Do you hold those in your hand? No, they don't exist today. Meaning, you can't really have the words of God. The inerrant truth of God, you can't really have and trust. And that's what most churches teach today. But if you understand that God has given you truth and he has preserved it and they're preserved in the very words and that's why um, it's important uh, to understand that the King James, God has preserved his very words. Not just thoughts, not just principles, but the very words of God. It's what you can trust and know that you can hold God's word in your hand and when life gets tough, you can stand on it as your authority, and God will take care of you. Um, I've seen, seen some churches and been part of some that they will hold um, to ancient uh, hymns and psalms, uh, and songs that have these and thou, but, but they have a word of God that, that is milquetoast. I'm thinking, oh, you have it backwards. Uh, and whatever you think about music, but it's so important that if you are going to 
stake your life on it and your eternal life, you better be able to stand on it and know that the words that God has given to me, I can trust. Instead of, well, it's a nice translation, but you can never know the words of God. And uh, Satan had something to say about that in the garden, didn't he? He said, yea, hath God said. Is that really what God said? So we can know that God has provided. So God uses individual words as keys to unlocking his truth, his word. And this specific, or this principle is specific to Bible believers. So um, one thing that's powerful uh, for me is I can take a word uh, and I can trace it throughout Scripture and the consistency all throughout that, God unfolds his truth by taking one word all the way through Scripture. And if you, if you have a what's called a critical text um, viewpoint or you have a modern translation, it's written thought for thought. So you can't trace what God's, what God's done with the very words of Scripture. And to me, that's probably the most powerful um, justification for the King James Version of seeing that thread that God has placed through all of Scripture. Um, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Proverbs 30, verse 5. So you either believe that or, or you don't. That every single word has been preserved and given for you. Now, I believe this is in English, okay? Can God have um, a different version for somebody that speaks as their heart language something else? I believe God can do that. Right? In Espanol or, or whatever. But I speak English. That's my heart language. This is what God has given to me. And the other thing that is pretty amazing as far as with words, if you, if you study what God has done with this book and the fruits that have come out of it, it's amazing. Okay, so every, every word in the Bible has a purpose and has been divinely placed and preserved where God wants it to be. Psalm, um, Psalm 12, 6 and 7. Let's go there real quickly. I just realized I need to move faster, don't I? Okay. Um, Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So God's word is preserved. God has given us examples of his precision in the authorized King James Version. The jot and tittle have been preserved as an example of the accuracy of the word of God. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For verily I say unto thee, or unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, a, a jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is the smallest Hebrew punctuation. This is what Jesus said. 
He said the smallest letter and the smallest punctuation will not pass away. Either that's true or it's not. So we, we have to, are we going to trust Jesus or are we not? I'm going to go with Jesus, okay? Not a betting man, but that'd be a great bet, right? So that's what he said. I'm going to go with that. With all the modern translations and those who have a critical text view, they say, well, that may be what God meant or maybe what God says. And you've got to stake your eternal life on that. I'm not going to do that. So there are some key words or phrases that you can trace throughout Scripture that, that really bring this home. Uh, the phrase, day of the Lord. That phrase uh, points to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, the most repeated theme in the Bible, the second coming of Christ. So that day of the Lord, that's when you pay attention that this phrase, God um, repeats. God didn't put, uh, we don't have highlighters in, in Scripture, but... The way that God highlights things is he repeats them. And this is a phrase that's repeated over and over, and the consistency is amazing. Every time that phrase, day of the Lord, pops up, you know that's referring to the second coming of Christ, which is with the day of the Lord, that's what Jesus is looking to, is that day when, when sin and evil are going to be put away and he will reign. We look to the day of Jesus Christ when he took away our sin what God the Father and Son are looking for is the day he's going to make all things right. Um, and that's all of Scripture points to that day. The day of Christ is a reference to the rapture or the harvest. So when you see that, you know it's talking about the rapture in Philippians 1 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Those days, over and over, you see all the way from Genesis 6... Judges and 1 Samuel, Jeremiah, I like that name of that book, uh, Daniel, Joel, Matthew, and Luke, those days points to the tribulation period. Um, so what is amazing is God has preserved specific words, and when you follow them, what happens is God will reveal, reveal his, his truth, his mysteries. We are to be custodians of the mysteries of God. It's not that they're, they're a secret to us. They are to be revealed to us. We're supposed to be putting the pieces together to see how the puzzle fits so we can go out and declare the truth of God to others. Now, what God has done is he's made it a mystery to, to Satan. Satan, he can't figure out exactly how this whole thing works nor those who reject God, they can't figure out how it works. And so that's why in the New Testament you see Jesus saying things and people are going, I have no idea what he's talking about. And Jesus says, I made it that way. Because it's given to us to take these words and to understand the mysteries and then to declare them uh, to others. Now, discipleship too goes into far greater detail um, about those words, and you'll see many more phrases in discipleship too. Principle number six um, is the preservation of God's word. And I've already kind of got into this before. Um, God has perfectly preserved his word in the English language so we might have certain understanding of his truth. In, um, 
John 21, 20, 24 through 25, uh, where it talks about um, the specific words um, that John wrote. And he says this in verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So the point is, the words that we need to have, God's recorded for us. If, if, we, if God would have written everything, we couldn't contain it all. So what you need is preserved for you right here. And it's a puzzle that you put together uh, by the Holy Spirit using the brain that God has given you um, and, and having a, a trusting faith. Um, one thing that was a very exciting thing for me, for me um, that I did, uh, I think it was last year or two years ago, um, there was a, an apparent contradiction in the Bible. And I'm like, wait a second, over here it says this guy was this old, over here it says he was this old. And um, I'm like, God, that doesn't make sense to me, I'm not understanding it, but you are right, I think you have something here for me. And the more I started digging, the more I saw, wow, this is amazing. And God puts those markers in the word to say, I dare you to dig this out and I dare you to trust me. Most people will go, oh, there's an error in the Bible. But if you, if you lift up and study it out, you see that God has perfectly put things together and they're harmonized. And he just dares people to check him out and to see the treasure that, that is there for him. God has preserved his word in such an amazing way. It's not just the idea, the intention, or the thought. It's every single word. Um, in Jeremiah... Uh, we we, we uh, know the story of what happened with Jeremiah. If you don't know the story in, in Jeremiah 36 and 29, what happened is um, Jeremiah put forth um, uh, a pronouncement to one of the evil kings and um, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim didn't like it. He says, that doesn't match with what I think and what I want to happen. You're not telling me what I want to hear. And so what Jehoiakim did is, is um, he took the words that, that were recorded by Baruch, who was the scribe, and he took a knife and cut it up. I don't want to hear this. And he threw it into a fire. And he was like, I'm the king. That's that. And God says, you're not the king. I'm the king. And so he... He had Jeremiah write um, other words and present it to the king. God says, you're nothing, king. Here's my pronouncement of, of what I say about you. And um, God uses Baruch to rewrite the prophecy again. What's interesting is it's a little bit different from the first time. And you, you read in Jeremiah 32 that God preserved his word despite the fact the original prophecy was destroyed. So the point of that is the fact that God will take what he wants and will make sure that he puts forth what he wants. And we can trust that what God has put forth for us, 
is what God wanted. And we don't really have to worry about exactly how God brought it, although studying history, how this, this book came to us is pretty interesting. But we, uh, what we can stand on is the fact that God will give us his word. A lot of people say, no, you've got to have the originals. I don't need to worry about the originals because God has given me exactly what I need. And I just have to trust him. So the same God who inspired the holy men of God to speak his word, he is capable of preserving his word through all time. It says in 2 Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost has preserved his word throughout time. Another thing that's, that's amazing, um, if you turn to, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse, oh, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. What's, what's really cool is um, if you look at the context before that, What's being talked about by, by Paul is he's talking about uh, those who are mistreating the words of God. And then um, he talks about what, how scripture should be taken and what should be done with, with scripture. And verse 15 it says, and that, that, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus, which, which is in Christ Jesus. And he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, what I want to point out here is that, that Timothy, um, who was a disciple of Paul, Paul says that, Timothy, you knew from a child the Holy Scriptures. Now, at that time, that was the Old Testament. So did Timothy have the original writings from the Old Testament all the way back from Genesis and those? No, he didn't hold those in his hands. And so what Timothy had was copies, and that's called Scripture. So what you have in your hand is not the original, but what you hold is scripture in your hand that you can trust. Just like Timothy. He didn't have the originals, but Paul said, Timothy, what you have been given is scripture from God, and you can trust it. So he didn't have the original Hebrew manuscript, but God certainly preserved his word so that Timothy had holy scripture. So you don't have to have the original manuscript to have God's word in your hand. Contrary to almost, well, I will say most churches and what they have on, you go online, you'll find that most churches in their doctrinal statement will say that, that um, scripture is just the originals that you can't hold in your hand today. I don't know how that shakes with you, but it doesn't sit well with me. That they tell me I can't really have scripture. So the written word that we have today is perfectly preserved in our language. 
uh, through human instrumentation that, that God has used, um, uh, using men to put it together, just as the word was preserved through Mary, the, the word meaning Jesus was preserved through Mary, and God used Mary to bring about Jesus. Mary was flawed. The perfect living word of God, Jesus, came forth through her womb. And God has used men to bring this, this word to you. So the King James Bible is per- perfectly preserved in English for you. Psalm uh, 12 talks about that. Again, Discipleship 2, we'll dive deeper in that. Um, I remember um, it was a, a church that I was at before this, and the pastor said, I'm leaving the King James, I'm going on to a different uh, Bible. And I said, whoa, wait a second. And I, I remember uh, praying. This is after being a Christian probably for not quite 20 years, and I'm like, Lord, help me understand this. I, I just want to know is this, is this true? And studying out manuscript evidence and, and history, I'm like, well, if I understand that Timothy had scripture and he didn't have the originals, when with Jeremiah, that, that God can take his word and preserve it, um, and then what's written in, in Psalms where God promises to preserve his word to all generations, uh, to me, it, it made sense because if you believe that um, this book is riddled with errors and so you need to have a modern translation, then you have to believe when this was basically the only scripture that was around for 400 years that God had no true Bible for 400 years and everyone was without a Bible. But God promised to preserve his word to every generation. So either it's true or it's not. So I'm, I'm going to stick with you can trust God because if, if you start going down that road, then the whole thing unravels and you might as well just chuck the whole thing. Principle number seven, uh, the theme of the Bible. And so the theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the kingdom. So um, every book, chapter, verse must be seen in light of God's plan for his kingdom. Um, Genesis 1, 28 to Revelation uh, 22, 1, the theme of the Bible is this. Um, the king will restore his kingdom. Now, I used to be an English teacher. Some people say the theme is the kingdom. Actually, a theme has to be a complete thought and statement, so it can't be one word. That's a topic, but... The king will restore his kingdom is the theme of the Bible, okay? The king will restore his kingdom. And so uh, that's what's happening throughout all of Scripture. And you understand that that's what's going on. And we'll, we'll look more deeply with um, dispensations of how that fits together. But God started with uh, in the garden where... Um, that, that kingdom got messed with, and he's going to put it all back together at the end where that will be restored. That's the story that you have, um, and that's the miraculous story of, of what God is doing with mankind. So Jesus is the king of his kingdom, which is this world and all the galaxies that it exist. He's the king of, of all kings, and uh, the kingdoms of the Lord... Um, 
He's the Lord of Lords as well. And Jesus will sit on his throne in New Jerusalem and fulfill all prophecies of his power and position and reign forever. We see that in Revelation 22. The history and the Bible record the struggle between the forces of evil and good. There's none good but God. So evil and God for this kingdom. And that's what you have. You go, well, I don't know about that. Okay, just turn on the TV or read any book because in every single story that's ever been, you have a nutshell of what's going on in the kingdom. There's a struggle, a good guy and a bad guy, and they're struggling for something. That's a picture of the kingdom. And God's placed it that everybody loves stories, right? Because this story that he's doing with all mankind is what we inherently know, that um, there, there is a struggle for something going on. And God's placed that in every person. I have a, a nine-month-old granddaughter. She, she can't even totally understand stuff, but she wants to sit with a book and turn the page. I'm not done with it usually, but she wants to turn the page, okay? She's already loving stories. We're just made that way because that's how all of mankind and all of human history are set up. And um, that beautiful story is, is the theme of the Bible. The king will restore his kingdom. So uh, the principle of first mention, we're going to start just zipping through these, but God's established his biblical patterns through the law of first mention throughout the entire Bible. I, I told you, if you take a, um, a word and trace it through the Bible, uh, if you look at the first mention, um, God established a pattern um, of this, and the first appearance of key words and phrases help us to understand their meaning. And so you look at that first mention, which sets a precedent for the rest of the meanings. And it's so very important. So God places the key words in key places that find their meaning throughout the Bible. Now, if you pay particular attention to um, books like uh, the Gospels and Acts, they're transitional books. And so understanding that those are transitions, as we talked about, and so uh, being careful with uh, meanings there. Uh, the first book of the Old Testament also is, is another first mention. God sets precedence. You have um, in Genesis, which is beginnings. Those are precedents uh, that are set, and that sets the precedence for the entire Bible um, all the way through for so many things. Remember the, the context principle when finding a first mention. You want to look at the context to help you understand why the first mention of the word or phrase is important. Um, but just, th this is so true with, with legal situations, is um, with court cases, they want to see what's the precedent, and then it sets up for everything that goes on before. We have a legal book here, and God sets precedent up that we want to pay attention to, and then he's a God of order, so it follows through with that first mention. Uh, number nine is the principle of, of last mention. So God uses last mention to show us fulfilled truth. He says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. 
And the last mention often serves as a bookend to the particular truth God has manifested in his word. For instance, the appearance of the tree of life is important to the fulfillment of God's kingdom. God establishes the purposes of the tree of life in Genesis 2.9 and in Genesis 3. But then if you take that all the way through to Revelation, you see that God reveals the tree of life's role in establishment of the kingdom. Um, if, if you just take that word tree and you trace it all the way through the Bible, it, it actually um, will show key points uh, throughout the Bible. Jesus died on a tree, right? Um, what happened in the garden? There was a tree that you needed to watch out for. In the end, in Revelation, there's another tree of, um, um, of life at the end. And God bookends and shows us his truth throughout that. Um, so if you pay attention to, to that uh, principle, God will show you uh, so many amazing things. So we must remember and understand the context and usage for a word or a phrase in context before seeing the relevance of the word or the phrase in the last mention. So context, context, context. Um, principle number 10, uh, patterns or similitudes. So we have examples um, where God speaks in similitudes or um, things that are... Um, similarities as we would say today comparisons and this was uh, a popular uh, part of hebrew poetry and hebrew thought is is comparisons they didn't have tv they didn't have the internet so god used nature and similitudes to help teach things and um, the spirit of god teaches the truth by comparing word pictures we all still love, my nine-month-old granddaughter loves pictures, but you do too, right? Uh, God gives us, we think in pictures. Um, and so God gives us pictures throughout uh, Scripture. So what I mean by that? Well, um, comparison words like as and, and like, those words, God uses all throughout Scripture. You should take a highlighter and point out or circle every time there's an as or like and, and uh, scripture will start popping and give you new meaning. As the heart or the, or the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee. So I need to be like a deer who just thirsts for God. That's what God wants you to see. Um, I used to have, look out my, my window in the morning, and there would be deer that would come up, and they would come for a drink every morning until they built houses and the deer went away. But... Um, uh, that was a constant reminder of I need to be ready to drink from God's word every single day like that deer who showed up every morning. Um, and God just put that you know, there as a, as a reminder for me to see that. Um, in 2 Samuel twenty two thirty four, he maketh my feet like hinds feet. Hinds are, are deer. And so, um, and setteth me upon high places. So God will, will make you run fast when you walk with him. So the words as, like, and so, when you pay attention to them, um, they help us to, to see word pictures. You, you see, God has, understands how our mind works. Our mind thinks in pictures. Uh, the, the way that, that God has, has made our, our, our brain, 
we typically think like we have files and then we put things in those files in our brain. Now, it's, it's dendrites and, and synapses and all those things, it's, it's, but um, we think of things. That's why when I go to my file for my son, sometimes I say the wrong son's name because I get to the right file, but I didn't get the right son in that file, right? may not happen to anybody else, but it happens to me. Well, um, God set up his word just like that, too, that he has files, um, folders with, within his word. But those pictures that we have, God, God places for us. And um, there are comparisons. So 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all should be made alive. Um, in Psalm 103:12, as far as the east is from the west, so far he hath removed our transgressions from us. Amen? That, that's so beautiful. So how far away is your sin as far as the east is as far as the west? As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. And so forth. It goes on and on. So as and like are two of the most important words in the Bible. Uh, and if you pay attention to those, you'll start seeing that the Bible is really a picture book. And you, if you think in pictures, God will bring your, your, um, the Bible to life for you in, in full color because he'll use his creation to help you understand his word. Um, principle number 11, the, the significance of numbers. And so um, there's, God is a precise God. He or ordered the entire universe, and he's based the universe upon order and numbers. And his creation is broken down many times into mathematical formulas because God is a God of truth, a God of, of math. So uh, numbers are great affirmation to scripture. So um, we're coming up on what year? Okay, so there's a number that's repeated there a couple times. The number two. The number two is division. I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of division lately. <laughs> um, so understanding division or separation. Three is completeness. Um, four. Do we have those listed? No. Um, four is a manifestation of God's order and perspective. We have the four seasons, four directions. We have four gospels, four quarters of the earth. Four perspectives um, of how we see things. Five is the number of death and grace. Six is the number of man. Uh, that's why in Revelation we see the number 666 uh, with the number of the beast, which is evil incarnate in a, in a man. Nine, fruit bearing. Ten, Gentiles. Twelve, Hebrews. Thirteen, rebellion. Don't believe me? Check out a 13-year-old kid. Uh, 40, testing. Um, okay, so how are we doing on time? Do it next week. I won't be able to. So um, I'm going to cut it short because I do want to um, get into dispensations, but I also I know that bad weather is coming. So um, let's stop with the number 12. And I'm going to go one more and then we'll stop and pray. And then um, you can get home. Uh, to get warm after you've gotten cold out there um, in the weather. So principle of seeing the superna uh, supernatural and natural. Uh, Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood 
by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they are with it, without excuse. Uh, the Bible clearly states that God manifests himself, the truth, through creation. And so God knows that we're simple people. We like pictures, and he's going to use his creation to help us see that. Malachi 4, the son of righteousness, S-U-N. Um, what's amazing about um, the sun, you've probably heard this before, but if you understand the three light rays, it shows the deity um, of the, the, the Trinity. It shows the Trinity. Um, and if you understand how the sun and moon work together, the moon is a picture of the church uh, that rules in the night time. The, the time of the church is the night. Um, and, and it just goes on and on. Eventually they break down, but God has given us pictures, not only in his word for similitudes, but then he says, I'm going to use my creation to help you understand truth and understand how everything fits together. Uh, stars represent um, the angelic host. Trees are, are pictures of men. Um, you have different animals, uh, and, and the list goes on and on and on, but an ox represents a Christian, a dove represents the Holy Ghost. The serpent, well, we, we know that over and over again, even if you're not a Christian, most people will know that represents uh, Satan. Um, a lamb represents Christ. And so over and over again, God puts those pictures. And um, we would do well to meditate on these as we're reading them and to study um, uh, to study a lamb and to, to understand the nature of how a lamb um, will, will work with a shepherd or with other, other, other um, lambs. And it will teach us about us as a Christian. So we would be, do well to study God's creation, meditate and chew on his word and let it get deep inside of us so it changes our heart and mind so it gets to the point of where David said in Psalm 119, um, it, no, no doubt that Psalms is the heart of, of the Bible, and Psalm 119 shows us the very heart of God. Um, David, who wrote the, the book of Psalms, was a man after God's heart. The point uh, that we are to get out of this, um, and we didn't get all the way through this, but it's about having a love for God through having a love for his word. That's what it comes down to. Not just having a bunch of knowledge, but to say, Lord, teach me your word so I can have a deeper relationship with you. And that's what we could all stand to do. No matter how much knowledge we have, we can all grow in our love for, for God through a love for his word. Amen? Okay, so let's pray. Heavenly W.